0: is the Next Trip Podcast with aviation insiders Doug and Drew. Together, with more than 40 years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other avgeeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own.
1: Welcome to Boarding Pass 51, everyone. We're operating on November Sixteenth, 2020. This is Drew, and I'm here with my flying partner, Doug. We did our 50th episode last week and had a great time ranting about our favorite wide bodies and liveries with three friends we met through our Avgeek networking.
0: Yeah, it was a blast. We'll continue to have them on as guests as well as quite a few other people. And speaking of having a guest, you and I scored a huge win this week with our special guest. It's an actual airline pilot (laughs) who's flown everything from the 727 all the way up to the 777. We've got Paul on. He just retired after 34 years of flying commercially.
1: Yep, Doug, an AvGeek friend, Chris, and a shout out to Chris out there. I know he's listening. He just started listening to us, and I think he may have listened to every episode now. So thank you, Chris, and uh, thank you for uh, giving us uh, our guest today. Uh, Chris is an avid listener, and uh, he said that his dad would be a great guest because he has a lot of stories. And as everyone knows, stories are right up our taxiway. So let's get going. Welcome, Paul.
2: Hey, hey, guys. Glad to be on the show. How's your week? Oh, it's good. Good. I'm 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 easing into retirement here. Um, oh, lucky you! Like it?
1: <laughs> well, you're I smiling. <laughs>
2: I don't miss those, uh, you know, five a.m. shows or something for an early flight.
1: Do you miss? You don't. You don't miss like the three-hour ATC delays to Chicago and to uh, gates for no, fuel. And... Uh,
2: you just told me before the show that you'd gone through ice school or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, waiting, waiting in the line or the de-ice pad to get de-iced and just all that goes along with inclement weather, snowy operations. Yeah, I'm just not missing that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this week, you know, we're talking about our weeks. This this week was just a blessing. We had, um, well, you know, Paul, in on the East Coast, we've had temperatures in the 70s, blue skies. And I'm teaching this de-ice training, which doesn't make sense. No one's answering any questions because no one's in that winter mode yet. <laughs> so... I always say between now and April first in the on the East Coast, every day without snow or ice is a blessing. So I'm just pinching myself. All right, let's keep this going.
0: Yeah, well, Drew, I I can piggyback on that because we we do our winter sim in the fourth quarter every year, where we cover mm-hmm. all the di stuff. It's uh, the fourth quarter starts on October 1st. And so both coasts, as they're going through the Sims, it could be 80 degrees and sunny when you go in on October 1st and 2nd, and you're doing the cold weather where you have to do cold weather corrections on final. You have to go through de-icing, starting the engines, cold soak, all that. And then you walk outside the Sim and it's 80 and sunny and and just removing your mind from that it's it's crazy
1: yeah i remember growing up watching airport 1970 and watching the plane get stuck in the snow and i'm like man how do they deal with that and now i'm actually working in an airport that has to deal with that so
0: we've got a lot of questions about your career and and lots of good things to talk about but we have to get to some av geek business and i i do that in (laughs) air air quotes out of the way first so we we posted this poll to our listeners we said and this came from our our friend tyler crook at t crook airways on twitter So which of your following is the favorite iconic U.S. airline airplane combo and any others we asked for? Let us know in the comments. The poll is attached. And so the poll, which Drew is going to cover the results here, was an American DC-10, a Delta L-1011 in the widget livery, Northwest DC-10 in the bowling shoe, what they call the bowling shoe. So the red, the gray, the white. And then the United 747 in the iconic salt Bass, the white with the, the multicolored stripes. So, Drew, what, what
2: were the results on this?
1: <laughs> well, can we let's discuss our favorites first and then we'll see if the
0: listeners concur.
2: Oh, absolutely. I, I just like the 747. I like the United um, 747. I don't know. It's just near and dear to my heart or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have... Um, Much history about L-1011s, DC-10s. To me, there'll never be another airplane like the 747. Mm -hmm.
0: I I would say of those, probably my favorite is the Northwest DC-10, just because I flew those Mm -hmm. so much growing up in in the Bowling Shoe livery. But uh, of the most iconic of those, I'm torn between the the United Saul Bass and the Delta widget on Mm -hmm. the L-1011. It's just, that's, I mean, you see pictures of ramps, even today, with certain media outlets that have really bad stock photos, you you still sometimes see those the Solvass United tool up and, and the Delta widget, especially on an L1011 or 747. Yeah. So
1: my favorite is uh, the United 747. Cause when I was six years old, my dad took me to SFO to watch the planes take off. We'd watch all the planes and then he'd be like, what's that one? And then I go, a jumbo jet. Yeah. <laughs> so that was always a 747. But my concern with this is when I think United, I don't think just 747. I also think DC 10. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going with the Elton 11 TriStar because I feel like that defines Delta. When I was growing up, it was a TriStar. You know, if you were going any place big, like another Delta hub or internationally, yeah. it was always TriStar. Sure.
0: yeah. Because Twitter only allows us to do four in a in a particular poll, and, mm-hmm. and that was all we were able to choose. Some of the ones, the other ones that we were talking about, the MD-80, the Mad Dog for American, the L-1011 for TWA, the 747 for Pan Am, the L-1011 for Eastern. I mean, there are dozens that we could talk about that when you think of a particular airline, particular plane, most people probably have a single livery a single airplane that that comes to mind for that airline. The winner was the Delta L-1011 with 31%. Second place was the United 747 with 25.9%. American D.C., 10 24.1%. And then the Northwest DC 10 19%.
1: So some of the comments. So Paul Thompson from Twitter, he said the Northwest DC 10 is the only one pictured on which I've actually flown my other DC 10 flights are also on uh, now extinct airlines, British Caledonian and continental. But there's another Northwest DC 10. Someone said this is Ann Freeman. She said, Delta all day long. I went to American once on a Northwest DC 10. I guess she means, means America.
0: America. Yeah. Yeah. He
1: said it wasn't my favorite flying experience. So she's Delta L 11. This other listener put uh, in order Pan Am 747. Good mm-hmm. one, right. That's classic. Yep. TWA Alton 11, another good one, Eastern A300 and Continental DC 10. Those are really good ones.
0: Yeah, I, I was a little surprised by the Eastern A300, though, because Eastern got the A300s, I think, towards the end of their existence. So to say that that was an iconic airplane, you, you know, from an airline airplane combo kind of surprised me a little bit.
1: Yeah. And then one of our uh, listeners, uh, Greg, who was on the sh- the fan episode last week, said so Delta, uh, Delta L11 is clearly the only right answer. The rest of you are all just wrong. <laughs> yeah, thanks, <laughs> so- <laughs> Craig.
2: Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> all right, only one news brief for today, because uh, the main event is Paul's career, which we're going to get to in just a second. But uh, we had some big news this last week. So we have, uh, looks like a successful COVID vaccine. Uh, it's uh, from Pfizer. It's, uh, they're saying that it, uh, could be 90% effective, which mm-hmm. is way more effective than even the flu vaccine. Hopefully, we'll have it at the end of the year, but more, more than likely by the beginning of next year. Uh, what are your thoughts, gentlemen, on how this will affect our industry?
2: My wife was in the medical field and actually did some, uh, was involved with some drug research and stuff. So she knows what's what's going into the, all the testing to make sure it's safe for humans and the trials that they're going through. But she said all along, since COVID has come out, we, we need a vaccine desperately to just get our lives back to normal again. Mm-hmm. And again, it'll be a huge boon to the airlines to have an effective vaccine, to get the travel industry really off, off the map, so to speak, um, because it's really been hit hard, as we all know, and um, the sooner the better.
0: <laughs> right. Doug? The 90% is huge. As you said, Drew, the flu vaccine, I think I read, it's 30 to 60% effective, and it just varies by year. And what I was reading is that with COVID, there have been very few mutations so far, even with the massive spread around the world. And because of that, it makes the vaccine even more effective and we can hopefully quash it. And they they were saying that not even measles has a 90% effectivity Mm. rate. Some of these companies, they were hoping for 50% because they were saying if they can get up to 50% or above, Mm-hmm. then that will help the curve go down once people get vaccinated, because a virus spreads when it has available hosts. And the fewer available hosts, whether it's through previous infection or through the vaccine, the more effective the vaccine will become. One thing that, that I think that we should talk about, and Drew, you and I in the coming months probably could devote an entire episode to talking about this, is the distribution of it. Right. It's huge huge news. Like great news. That it's 90%. It's going to take a long time to get the number of people vaccinated that that need to be. And so, of course there is guarded optim or guarded caution, guarded I don't want to call it pessimism there, but it, it, it's not going to be guarded an imme- optimism. Yeah, guarded optimism. It's not going to be an immediate thing, but this is definitely something to celebrate. And all of the airlines came out and and applauded this. The governments came out and applauded this. So even though it's going to take a little while to get the vaccine to where it needs to be from a global distribution standpoint, this is huge news. And and the Pfizer one was the first one that came out. I don't remember what other pharma company. Well,
1: but Moderna. Moderna. They
0: they yep. They said probably in the next week or so they'll have the results from their late stage trials. So we're starting to get into that time frame where we're going to get these. And and keep in mind these companies after stage two trials, phase two trials yeah. were so optimistic about those results that they started mass mass production of them waiting for the final stage trials so these companies have been producing these for months oh, okay. at this point so that That'll way be they'll, they'll be ready so really it comes mm-hmm. down to our industry the aviation industry to figure out how the logistics of moving a vaccine of, of this nature literally around the world to every corner of the globe in the coming months and and years and then to keep that cycle going.
1: Well, you saw that um, as soon as the announcement was made, I mean, you talked about guarded optimism, airline stocks went up 20 to 25% along yeah. with
0: cruise, cruise stocks. So,
1: Yep. Yeah, it's all, you know, looking ahead. And there is that confidence now that we have something. So Paul, I want to ask you, uh, before the news of a vaccine, one of the major airlines, American said that they're planning a 75% schedule for summer 2021. Do you think that's doable?
2: Actually, this last summer, I'm what? What were the numbers? How far how far did we yeah. cut down last summer? What did the airlines, I, I know that we're just, all the airlines are just trying to reduce their cash burn to zero.
1: Right. And we have cut, I, I'm not talking about one specific airline, but just talking about the majors, the cash flow. Um, it used to be negative 40, 50 million for some yes. carriers. Yes. And we're down to, uh, for Delta and United, below 20 million. And I believe Delta is going to be at 11 million. And that, according to the airlines, that will make it sustainable, that operating an airline will be sustainable all through 2021, which is great news. Mm-hmm. That is
0: good news. Yeah, and I, I just finished my third quarter analysis of all, all the airline results, and it, it varied widely, like United and Delta were some of the lowest from a, or I guess the highest from a percentage drop for RPMs, the revenue passenger miles, mm-hmm. they were down 70 to 75% year over year. Yeah. American was closer to 50%. Airlines like Spirit, who are mainly a leisure carrier, even though they're a lot smaller from a, a total passenger standpoint, Spirit was only down like 20% year over yeah. year for the quarter.
1: And, and there's there is an airline that just made a profit. <laughs> Do you know which one, you guys? Sun Country. Is it
0: Sun Country? I, I, well, I did I, I, I did know. see that Sun Country what I don't was know on about, the verge, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't know about Sun Country, sun country maybe but sky west paul one of our regional carriers yeah. is making a profit because mm-hmm. they're taking over some of these routes where we can't fill a 737
2: yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and and to to answer your question drew about, about american I, I just read literally right before coming on that um ryanair thinks mm-hmm. that they'll be at 80 percent next summer
1: next summer okay capacity so, yeah um, yeah, you know, you guys, I think it is gonna happen at least seventy five percent because American was saying that before the talk of a vaccine. So yeah, we'll just hope that this vaccine kicks in by spring and then we'll be ready to go in the summer. I'm I'm
0: hopeful. True. Yeah, that would, be great.
2: That would be-
0: I, I I do just want to point out that capacity doesn't equal revenue. Revenue is still trailing. So even though even though yeah. capacity at an airline like American was only fifty percent lower in the quarter, the revenue was still down about seventy percent. Why? Because yeah. it's it's the high yield, the business, the business travel. And mm-hmm. Scott Kirby has said multiple times. So that's the United CEO. he said multiple times revenue isn't going to be above. of what it was in 2019 2019, until a vaccine is widely available to the masses.
1: All right. Now, speaking of uh, revenue, ups and downs, crises, disasters, all that stuff, um, let's get to the main event because Paul has actually been through a lot of them as I've been through some in my career. Uh, Doug, you're seeing some right now. So let's, let's get to the main topic. So Paul, let's hear about your journey to the left seat of a triple seven.
2: I, I had a general aviation background, um, never in the military. And I was always interested in airplanes, boats, submarines, read stories about World War Two. I knew I always wanted to learn how to fly, never thinking of an airline job. And when I was 21 years old, I had a job and had some money and thought this is a good time to um, take flying lessons. So um, again, just went out to the local airport, wanted to learn how to fly a Piper Cherokee, they called it. Uh, Mm -hmm. This was up in Rochester, New York. Uh, You can imagine the weather up there um, after July or August passes by. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I didn't realize this. I started flying like right at the beginning of spring when the weather's getting better, the days are getting longer. And by the end of uh, September that year, I had my private license, but fully realizing I had to go on and get my instrument rating to fly in bad weather. Uh, Things just kind of kept going from there as far as getting additional ratings, a commercial rating, um, flight instructor rating. And then I started just freelance by word of mouth. um, I knew a fella at uh, the airport. I was now back in Buffalo where I grew up. I was flying out of Niagara Falls airport and a guy rented uh, some Cessnas. So I found, you know, by word of mouth, I found some students and I'd fly after work and on weekends and um, really enjoyed it.
1: Did you think uh, about a career? Were you thinking about a career at all during this? No. Yeah. That's crazy. OK.
2: Or, or <laughs> if I thought of a career, I thought, you know, if I could fly, does anybody know what a Beach 18 is? It's like a scaled down version of a DC-3 um, or it looks very similar to the Lockheed aircraft that Amelia Ear, Earhart uh, mm got lost in
0: yeah it's got it's got the split uh the split rudders yeah. right yeah,
2: yeah. about the size of a dc3 okay i thought if i could fly a dc3 hauling freight at night wearing jeans and a leather jacket <laughs> uh, that would probably be the pinnacle of my aviation career you know if i could, could aspire to something <laughs> like that along the way i took a year off and went out to Fargo, North Dakota, Mm. get my um, mechanics license because they had a school that you could get your mechanics license in one year. When I was out in North Dakota, I thought, you know, if I could find an airplane that like made it that needed some repair work, I could fix it out at school here. Kind of like a shop project in shop class, you know, where we used to make a a table or a chair or a lamp you know it's like well if i could fix an airplane i could go home with my shop project Well, long story short i we found a wreck bonanza which is a four seat uh single engine high performance general aviation aircraft with a v-tail and uh took it apart disassembled it and took it back to school and i worked on it for six months and at the end of six months when i was graduating i took my shop project home with me
1: (laughs) oh wow that's great
2: My career before then was um, a construction electrician and couldn't find any kind of flying job or any kind. So I um, started doing what I knew, you know, um, electrician. A friend of mine said, you know, I think you have enough hours now that one of these commuter airlines would look at you. There was a small commuter airline uh, that was Allegheny Commuter. They was uh, the Express for U.S. Air at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was based. It was a mom and pop company out of Jamestown, New York, which is about 60 miles south of Buffalo. I called them up and, you know, said, "What are your qualifications that you need?" And I seemed to have had enough. By then, I think I had around 14, 1500 hours of flying under my wow. belt. I had about 600 hours of um, flight instruction time and Cessnas, and barely had 100 hours of multi-engine time. Uh, That I begged, borrowed, and stole, so to speak. You know, whenever I can hop a ride with somebody. Or yeah, they ended up hiring me. I was in school down there to um, learn to fly a Beach 99, a 15-passenger turboprop, unpressurized commuter airplane. But about the second week of ground school, the chief pilot walked in and said, "We need some uh, first officers in Charlottesville, Virginia." Mm. I had no idea where Charlottesville, Virginia was, (laughs) but I knew it was south of the Mason-Dixon line in the winter down there was not going to be near as bad as it was going to be up in Buffalo. <laughs> so I shot my hand into the air and said, I'll go. Where is Charlottesville? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll go. Where is it?
2: And there we learned uh, to uh, fly the 19 passenger, uh, swear Metro liner.
0: Oh, the Metro. The oh, flying yes. toothpaste I've, <laughs> I've had, yeah, I've had dozens of flights on the Metro back <laughs> uh, in the day. Yeah,
2: it was pretty loud. It was It was the fastest, biggest thing I'd ever flown. Uh, It was a 19 passenger, uh, like a 1,000 horsepower turboprop each side, Um, 250-knot airplane. Yeah, so um, came down here for a couple years, and it was so funny. I showed up down here. I was the oldest guy in the base in Charlottesville. I was 28 years old. The next oldest guy was the station manager. He was 26.
0: <laughs>
2: most of the captains I flew with, we had three captains and three co-pilots, three first officers here in Charlottesville, which I was one of. And uh, most of the captains were just 23 years old, 24 <laughs> years old. Mm-hmm. Their dads were captains at U.S. Air and got you know got their sons jobs at um, the airline. Uh, here, and um, early on, these guys were asking me, "Um were well, you gonna try for the major airlines?" And I was like, "The major airlines, you know, and uh, it it was never even on my radar screen. I, I just thought, well, someday I'll be captain of a beach ninety nine or a metro line. <laughs> <laughs> and that that far exceeds my expectation of flying a beach eighteen at night. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is this is so foreign to Doug and me, because I think Doug and I always wanted to work for a major airline, but you seem to have just fallen into it.
2: Again, when I got to the commuters and a lot of these young captains were asking me if I was going to try for the major airlines, and again, it had never even been on my radar. In the late 70s, when I started to fly, there was a recession going on. A lot of airlines had pilots furloughed. And truth be known, I don't have a four-year college degree. I have, a, I have a two-year college degree with my AMP license, my mecha- aircraft mechanics license. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that aircraft mechanics license, I hope that would help me get a job. And I really did think it got my job at the commuters and at the major airline mm-hmm. that I hired. Oh. I just didn't think I was good enough to be an airline pilot. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny With my mechanics background, I thought I could probably work on airplanes, but mm-hmm. I don't think I could fly one. <laughs>
0: so you you went from Allegheny find the the metro liners to yes. was the 727 then your first foray <laughs> into the majors or what, what what did you start out on
2: yes yeah um yeah when you're hired with the majors it's all seniority based when you're hired mm-hmm So you're the new guy on the block. So you're at the bottom of the totem pole. Back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, a lot of the first generation jets were not automated um, in any of their systems or anything. So you had a pilot, a co-pilot, first officer, and sitting behind them at a big panel with lots of gauges, switches, and lights was the uh, flight engineer's panel or the second officer. And so I was hired as a second officer on the 727. You didn't fly the airplane at all, but you were responsible for pre-flighting the airplane, getting it ready for flight, um, starting the engines, um, turning on the hydraulic pumps, putting the generators online, controlling the cabin temperature. When the airplane was finally ready to go, you turned to the pilots and said, okay, we're ready. (laughs) um, It wasn't ready before you said we were ready.
1: (laughs) Wow. So now, so second officer, now this was for uh, United in the Washington area?
2: Yes. Yeah. And
1: how did you put in for it? When did you get the call? What was your reaction?
2: I got a call to come out and interview. So I went out to Denver, Colorado. The first day was one whole day of like written written tests and aptitude tests and personality tests. And if you pass that, you went to you went to your hotel lobby mailbox and there was a yay or a nay letter in there saying, Nay. You don't meet the qualifications as one of our pilot applicants. Here's your ticket home. Oh wow! Or you have an interview with um, a personnel uh, scheduled tomorrow in the morning, and then in the afternoon, go to our training center where we have our medical department for a medical examination. And then the um, and then you got your yay or nay letter that night that said nay, go home, or mm. you have a simulator session um, scheduled for tomorrow. Mm. And I got the letter to go to the simulator session. I went to the sim. And I, I, I look back on it now. And it was a, um, a 767 glass cockpit. I'd never flown a flight director before, which helps <laughs> you guide the airplane. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yep. I was always a round dial kind of guy, we call it. <laughs> I sat down on the seat and I said to the instructor, like, where do I put my quarter in for this video? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think, okay, so we need to plane a little bit for our listeners. So what Paul's talking about, the glass cockpit is what would seem normal to everyone. Now you walk into a cockpit, it's all glass screens, but in the eighties, we were going from dials and 2 million of them, literally all over the place. Right. And now you're looking at a a glass. Let's, let's
0: be careful what you say, Drew, in the eighties, I still fly. <laughs> mm-hmm. I still fly an airplane that is all like ninety nine percent steam gauges. That's we're, right. Very <laughs> little glass. No, so but I, you
1: fly an MD ten. So it doesn't that have
0: glass? No, not. we're we're not. No. No, I I in fact. So I, I have uh, a bone to pick with you in the okay. rundown. In the rundown for today, you said you have to explain to me what a second officer is to young. Yeah, you don't. like oh, you have one. I have a I have a flight engineer. So all this I, time, so, I'm
1: thinking you've been upgraded to an MD-10. No, nope, nope,
0: we're, we're still an old school DC-10. So I've got some stats for you. You ready for this, job? Oh, oh, Here we go. Okay. I've had 39 commercial flights in an airplane <laughs> that had a second officer, 12 727s, 6 747 200s, and 21 DC-10s. Mm-hmm. I have over 500 flights in a KC-10 with a flight engineer with sitting flight behind engineer. me doing all of this. <clears throat> like, okay. So
1: Paul, then I got a question about this second officer. Now tell us the truth. Is that person doing all the grunt work while the other guys are having coffee and deciding what they're going to have for dinner? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> You're doing the walk around and you just said.
2: It, it was It was said at the at the airline that the, that the co-pilot, the first officer, had the easiest job in the whole airline. Mm-hmm. Where it was basically he would sit in the seat, and it was pedo heat. Uh-huh. He would turn the pedo heat on, window heat, turn the window heat on, and then he, when do we eat? Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. And now, he would read the checklist for the captain. He would read the okay. checklist for the
1: captain. Now, I got a question for both of you then, because you both have uh, experience working with second officers or being one. The second officer can't land the plane if uh, the two up front get incapacitated? They aren't trained how to do uh, that in emergency.
2: The two up front are capacity. Yeah, I have all my I had all my ratings and everything, but that's just where the bottom junior guy started at the airline was you were you didn't get into the right seat as a co-pilot, which like you do nowadays, because mm-hmm. we don't have any aircraft that require a flight engineers. They're all automated enough now that they're just two pilot cockpits. Yeah, you, that's we're just where you started out.
1: Can your second officer land uh, a DC ten, Doug?
0: No, no. And no, the difference between us and the commercial world is our flight engineers don't have any sort of pilot training unless they've done civilian on the side. Whereas in, on the in, on the commercial side, the second officers they're all qualified, fully qualified pilots, and they just happen to start out on the panel as we call yeah. it. Yeah, so that's that's the difference. And a, a little bit different too, is Paul, as he was a first officer or a captain, knew a little something about the panel and could probably sit there if he needed to. Yeah. I give I've had very little training on how to operate the panel. I, I mean, I, I know what I need to from like a checklist standpoint, I can look yeah. back and I can I can see how everything is set up. And I understand how the pneumatics work and how the, the fuel works and everything. But if my flight engineer was incapacitated, I, I wouldn't know how to how to run all of the charts to balance the fuel in, in really the way that, in the way that we would need to. Yeah, wow. which okay, is di- so which critical. is different. So from a Part One Twenty One standpoint, so at the airlines like Paul flew for, the FAA requires that one of the two pilots is qualified on the panel as well. And th- there are no commercial airplanes anymore, at least in, in the U.S., that still have a. Uh, uh, flight engineer panel. Huh. So that that's kind of an outdated thing. If my FE was incapacitated, neither n- none of the pilots have had experience on the on the panel. And so you really just have to. to- do-
1: google what to do
0: yeah get get low (laughs) enough get a cell service google yeah
1: exactly yeah so we could literally spend this whole show on the second officer (laughs) but we we got to get to the triple seven now but now a question i have for you you um i know from chris and i know i think you mentioned you flew the a320 and most of the boeing planes airbus or boeing uh, what's your preference I, i know that's a loaded question
2: Yeah, you know, it was really hard at first. I I went from the right seat of the um, 757, 767, which 757 was a wonderful airplane to fly, very overpowered. And just Mm. as one captain told me one time, he goes, 767 is like a Cadillac, but like Mm. a 7's like a Corvette.
1: (laughs) I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Someone mentioned Rolls Royce for the 67. But yeah, you know, same thing.
2: So then I went, I got my upgrade bid to the, um, the captain's seat, the left seat on the Airbus. That was my first captain's airplane, we call it. There are a lot of guys that would go through Airbus school and say, well, on the Boeing, we did it this way. <laughs> and I know the instructors out at our training center were sick of hearing that. So I, <laughs> before I went out to training, I said, I am not going to say on the Boeing, we did it this way. I'm going to learn to speak French and <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to learn this airplane. I had a really good sim instructor that really... Because I thought, I, being this is my first captain's airplane, I really got to feel comfortable with the airplane. So I have some brain cells left over to do captain stuff.
1: <laughs>
0: right.
2: So um, so I had a really good um, instructor in the sim that really, I, I felt very comfortable in the airplane. Um, I showed up the first day of class and there was about six of us starting out on Airbus School. And the instructor closed the door and said, Welcome to the best kept secret at our airline. Hmm. He goes, you're going to love the airplane. You're going to love the pa- places it flies. And and he was so right. Um, wow. Drew, it, can- it took me, it did. Once I got on the airplane, it did take me a while because it it just wasn't a 757. Like I said, it's it's not your father's Boeing, so to speak. <laughs> After a couple months, uh, and, and I was on the thing for 18 years. Oh, wow, wow. A thousand hours in it. Huh. And it it never turned around and bit me, you know. It, um, it never turned on me. I I know some other people. I heard some stories, but um, but I, I I think it's a great airplane.
0: Drew, we we need to explain real quickly for the listeners, just who may not understand. So going from the seven fifty seven, seven sixty seven, with a yoke, the mm-hmm. rudders, just the standard setup the Airbus has a side stick and it is very, very highly automated. And so the the flight controls just feel completely different. It it is a completely different airplane to fly. And not just that, kind of as Paul said, learn how to speak French. It's designed by the European consortium. Mm -hmm. So yes, the dials look somewhat the same, but it would be like going from, I I don't even know what to say, from a, a US built car, to, to a bmw yeah a bmw i mean e- even yeah. on a, a higher a higher level than that and so just the differences between the two but how did you like the tray table paul because uh, all my all my friends who have gone from like the 737 to the bus all they talk about is the amount of mm. space that they have in front of them the open mm. space in front of them
2: yeah when they when they retract the tape t- tray table yeah when you retract the tape tray table it's 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 like sitting at a business class seat you know with all the wow. and um, then you'd pull it out and just put your books there, or you put your crew meal there. Actually, most people said when they went back to a Boeing airplane with a yoke, not that they missed the side stick, but they said they missed the trade table number one. <laughs> 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 then they missed the side stick second. <laughs>
1: So, Paul, what I remember from um, engineering school, so my degree was part business, part engineering. My Our instructor was British, and he was an Airbus fan, and he would tell you how great the Airbuses were compared to the Boeings. Mm-hmm. Now, His one description was, when you take off in a 737, you take off, then you have to trim it, so it keeps that rate of climb. Um, you have to do all this trimming constantly, but with the Airbus, you can pull back, and you can even turn right, let it go, and it'll hold whatever you left, right? Is that is that true? That'll, that's your new neutral?
2: It auto-trimmed. It auto-trimmed. It was amazing. And I didn't realize how much I missed the trim until I got back, got into the 777, the Boeing again, and I had to trim it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: I don't know. The 777 had a funky trim system. And it, it, it was it amazed me when I went to 777 school, the two different design philosophies between Airbus and Boeing and how to build a computerized fly-by-wire airplane. The Boeing 777 came out in 1995. It was their first truly fly-by-wire airplane, but the Airbus had been out since the early mid 80s. Mm-hmm. and And so there's, you know how fast technology changes. So I was sorely disappointed in Boeing's, Fly by wire air first fly by wire that was ten years later with all the technology and it was almost like Boeing was going to build a, 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 a you know a, a way to do something with the airplane and like change altitudes on the autopilot and and the Airbus had kind of an, to me an intuitive way but Boeing like Seth says no they let's do it no they do it that, that way on the Airbus no we're not going to do it we're going to come up with our own way <laughs> and yep. and so it, it really. I, I sat back in amazement and um, in awe of how how they they tried to build it so differently.
1: All right. Now I got another question on the two. So you went from Boeing to Airbus and then back to Boeing. Yes. So I've heard that the Airbuses are so computerized that it kind of takes you a little bit away from that seat of the pants flying experience. Did you notice that? Did you feel like it was um, cushioning the way you fly, like what you'd normally feel when you're flying a plane?
2: Um, it was different. Um, Boeing went to great lengths to try to make it feel like an old time seat of the plants airplane. And it's hard to describe. But as you come at the land, as your airspeed gets slower and slower, as you're just starting to flare out and, and touch down, the nose will get heavier and heavier. And, and Boeing, you know, tr- built that even with the triple seven, you know, tried to build that into there. So it felt like an airplane. Mm. where the Airbus yeah there was really no feel or feedback uh so to speak they but but the trade-off was you could fly the thing with your fingertips i used to we used to practice um uh takeoffs where we had an engine failure on the runway at a critical time in the sim so you would rotate the plane to lift off to runway and to not over control i would just like Pull back on the stick and go like one potato, two potato, three, and let go of the stick. And then it would, like you say, once once it was pointed, it trimmed so that you no pilot inputs were required. And then
0: so you didn't you didn't even have to step on the rudder.
2: Yeah, you had to step on. Okay. Yeah, you to, okay. Yeah, you didn't have to step on the rudder. Yeah. Yes, to center the airplane up. But you kind of once you got that fed in, the idea was to have the plane going straight down the runway before you did the rotation because. If you didn't have the planes, if you took off kind of caddy to the runway, mm-hmm. crab to the runway, yeah, then you 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 got yourself into some problems. But if you if you had the airplane tracking straight, you just kind of locked your leg in on the rudder, you know, to, to compensate for your dead engine, and then you would just do the rotation, and then you know, one potato, two potato, let go of the stick, it would, and then you would kind of see where you were, and then you would make your final adjustments to kind of fly out. Interesting. Um, hmm. Now, the Boeing, the triple, actually has a rudder compensator that will compensate for the re- loss of thrust. I don't know. In the simulator, it never seemed to work as well as I, I heard guys talking about how it was um, the greatest thing since sliced bread. But <laughs> I was still surprised at how much rudder, so to speak, I had to put in to, to keep it tracking straight. Um, <laughs>
0: Well, so since we're talking about the 777, let's, uh, I mean, it's a great airplane. Let's move on to talk about some of the places that you went. Because uh, for those who don't know, the 777 can fly anything and everything. At the airline that Paul flew for, I mean, I've flown it domestically. I, Drew, you—you, you, I'm sure you have as mm-hmm. well. So it can, do, it can do domestic legs. It can do the transcons. I, I flew it Denver to, or uh, Chicago to Denver. I mean, a mm-hmm. two-hour flight on the 777. But let's talk about the long haul. So the triple seven is is all about the long haul, the the long flying at the international. So, Paul, if if you had some favorite destinations or a single favorite destination that you went on the triple seven, what, what would it be?
2: I hate to disappoint you almost, but I really love flying to Europe. But I have been to Beijing and Tokyo. I never got to like Sydney or any of the other Far East destinations, mostly those were out of San Francisco and I was based out of Washington Dulles. Doing Asia was harder on your body because of the time changes and things Mm -hmm. and the flight. But Europe was kind of like a easy peasy kind of thing. We'd leave at five or six o'clock in the evening, fly seven, seven and a half hours, land over in Europe and it's morning over there, like seven in the morning, go to the hotel, get some sleep, get up, um, Get to work out at the gym, you know, meet the rest of the crew for dinner and uh, next day leave about noon to, to fly back to the States. Um, I, I still check like the Frankfurt and Munich weather, you know, just, as, you know, <laughs> How they, you know the, the German people, they're fun. They, they like to go out. They like their beer. They, um, um, you know, they just on a nice day, it just they, everybody comes out into the beer gardens and just um, so I, I, I really I really. I, I, like I say, I, I miss Germany. Um, London was great too. It's just so British, you know, I mean, you just, <laughs> it's just, it's just, it, it's just it, London wasn't as much of a favorite because it is a, a pain getting in and out of Heathrow. Mm-hmm. And it was a long ride down to our downtown hotel. Um, so a lot of people and the, and the, the trip didn't pay as well because it was a shorter trip to Europe, yeah. one of the shortest trips to Europe. So it didn't pay as well.
1: Paul, would you sleep on those? I I know there's a bunk, but does anyone really sleep on such a short flight?
2: um, I wouldn't say that I I would always go to the bunk. Um, I would always go to the bunk. And no, not that I would always sleep, but I would kind of like your computer in sleep mode, kind of power down, close my eyes. um, And i get some rest, yeah. Mm. Um, We had a first-class seat in back if we wanted, but I found out early on uh, doing – international again, going to Europe, that um, the first, there's three pilots, a captain and two first officers. After about 15 minutes after, all three of us are in the cockpit for takeoff and landing. Mm -hmm. About 15 minutes after takeoff, the first, um, one of the first officers would take his break. Most of the captains would take the second break when we were over the mid-Atlantic, but I always took the third break because I wanted to be kind of tired, you know, because it was in the middle of the night. and, And so I would take the third break. I'd get up a little earlier than what my wake up time, because about 40 minutes before landing, we're getting close to the what we call the top of descent to start our descent into our destination city. I get up get my coffee and um, a little bit of breakfast and like, okay, I'm ready to land this thing and go to the hotel, you know, so uh, middle of middle of the night, the cabin's quiet, it's dark. But in the morning, if If you're in the seat and, you know, the the flight attendants are serving breakfast, they're clattering dishes, the window shades are (laughs) up, lights are up. So it was just much, much nicer just going to the bunk and kind of being in a little cocoon. I called it a, I called it a closet with two bunk beds in it is what it, (laughs) yeah, we did get the um, 300 ER triple seven, the triple seven, 300 ER. And that had like a little spiral stair, a little ladder staircase that went up into the almost up to the ceiling and uh, the aircraft. And it was almost being in your own private jet. It had like two business class seats and two beds behind the seats, but it was, you couldn't stand up in there. It was only about four and a half feet high, but, but it felt like you were in your own little corporate jet up there.
1: Okay. So, all right. So I got to ask this question. So going from the two triple seven, 200 to the 300, the 300 is so long yes. when you're coming in, is there some, do you have to know that you can't flare as much as on the 200? Cause you might, cause the tail is so long or do you even think about that?
2: Believe it or not, they, they used the older 300 ERs had a tail skid on the back, like the 67 300, but the newer ones that our airline got, they have it built into the fly-by-wire computer software that you can't hit the tail.
1: You no way. Tail. <laughs> but okay.
2: it wasn't so much landing, but the landing gear was about. 15 feet from the nose gear to the main, the main gear was like 15 feet farther back. So Mm -hmm. you had to be very careful taxiing because you you think of, uh, if you ever pulled a a trailer behind your car, you don't want to cut a corner real sharp because you're going to drag your trailer through the mud. Mm -hmm. Well, we actually had camera on the 300 ER. We actually had a camera on the landing gear to show us how close we were to the edge of the taxiway. Oh,
0: that would be so nice.
2: Well, you know (laughs) what I figured, I didn't really look at it too much. Because I, I all I figured out was, well, that's just gonna tell me how far off the runway into the mud I went. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. No, because taxi I mean the the DC ten, our, our landing gear is, is so far back because of the second engine where the wings are and, and just the design that it's about like the triple seven three hundred ER. And taxiing is definitely the most difficult thing that we do in that airplane. And and if yeah. if we had cameras like that, oh man, that would that would relieve so much stress on my part when I'm sitting yeah. in the right, in the right seat, teaching a student how to taxi this giant airplane.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Th- I always remembered that the nose gear was about 10 feet behind where I was sitting. So mm-hmm. that kind of helped put things into, pre- so it really looks like you're overshooting the turn. Yeah. And then you make the turn. Yeah. You know? okay. Well,
0: we're, we're running kind of <laughs> on time. So Drew, I, I know you, you have one quick story that you want Paul to tell. So let's, let's get Well, started. one quick story, but, um,
1: before we get to that, we got to talk about Chris. So your son is an AvGeek. When did you realize uh, you had a AvGeek son?
2: He, he'd been through 9-11 when he was, he was golly, you know, early grade school, first, second grade when 9-11 happened. And then the bankruptcy with our airline. And, um, you know, there's a saying that um, it's a great job, but sometimes a lousy career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, with it's all nice. the options. Downs, no pun intended, but um, he um, he called us up when he was a sophomore in college, to tell you the truth. And I had taken him flying. We rented a little Cessna at the airport in high school, and I took him for a ride, and it was a bumpy day, and I couldn't quite get him to take the controls, and I didn't push it. And so we landed, and I was like, how was that? And he goes, you know, typical teenage, it mm-hmm. was okay. <laughs> so fast forward, he's a sophomore in college, and one night he calls his mom and I up, and he goes... I think I wanted to get into aviation like dad. And my wife turned to me across the room and gave me the dirtiest look. <laughs> Your <laughs> fault. And I was like, I threw my, I didn't. I didn't say anything. And, um, so that's like the first time I knew that he was, uh, interested in, really interested in aviation. Yeah.
1: All right. So, um, we have time for one story. We have to decide between the cabin drama or the lab story you pick, Paul. I know you had two, (laughs) at least two.
2: That's kind of fun. We're getting ready to go one day in the Airbus out of Dulles. We're going to do a transcon flight, I think to Los Angeles. The, The flight attendant calls up and say, Hey, um, my indicator shows back here that the lavatories haven't been dumped from the previous flight. They haven't dumped the tanks. Okay, not a problem. We'll call. uh, Operations haven't dumped the tanks. So call operations. They're boarding the airplane. And fast forward a little bit. She calls up, says, hey, they still haven't dumped the labs. We said, "Okay, we'll call. Called again. And they said they've been dumped. Oh, okay. And I went back and forth. Finally, I turned to the co-pilot and said, well, I even contacted our maintenance because sometimes the Airbus was notorious. It had all these computers in it. And sometimes they, they go through all these self-test modes before they boot up. And if there's a little glitch, it'll come up with a fault. So the idea is you you have to kind of shut it down. Sometimes we pull a circuit breaker and reset it so it would reboot the system. So I thought maybe there was a circuit breaker. We could reboot the laboratory quantity computer. So all of a sudden, come on off our cockpit printer, there's a, a maintenance deferral. They're saying maintenance is thinking, oh, the indicator's broken. And so, you know, they've been verified that they've been dumped. They're empty. You know, we'll, we'll fix the indicator at a later date. So I turned to the co-pilot and said, do you think they've been dumped? He goes, yeah, I, I think they've been dumped. And I said, okay, we'll go. So we are two-thirds to three-quarters the way through our flight. And the flight attendant calls up and says, the lavatories aren't flushing. The red in op light is on. And I just Uh-oh. did a beverage service. Uh-oh. <laughs>
0: So what, what's, the clo- what's the closest divert airfield is the first thing Vegas, that I'm thinking.
2: So I got on the PA and, you know, and said, folks, we were lied to. <laughs> <laughs> they told us that our laboratories had been dumped and they hadn't. And I said, we have two choices. We could either divert into Las Vegas or um, if you're willing, you know, we could kind of try to press on to Los Angeles. Hmm. I said, those are our options. And the flight attendant called up a minute later and says, "People are giving back their beverages." (laughs) (laughs)
0: Los Angeles.
2: Oh, we're about ready. That's
1: teamwork now to get to LA.
2: (laughs) We're about ready to land. I, we, we made the PA announcements for the flight attendants to prepare the cabin for landing, and the flight attendant called up and said, "Be very." Very gentle. The bowls are full. <laughs>
1: oh, that's a good one. And taxi quickly to the gate, right? Yeah.
2: No, but slowly to the gate. You didn't want to slosh.
1: Oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> Okay, that's right. So
2: that's my laboratory story.
1: <laughs> How far into the flight was this?
2: It was like, well, it was, well, um, was two thirds to three quarters. Like I say, we would have turned to go into Las Vegas or something like that. We oh, were gotcha. almost there, almost what we call the, the top of descent about 30, 30, 30, 40 minutes out from landing.
1: Yeah, I think that's cool that you, you didn't take a poll, but you kind of felt the pulse of the customers because customers usually want to press on and they'll do whatever it takes.
2: Yeah, and like I say, the, the flight attendant and they gave their beverages back. <laughs>
1: They're like,
0: uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: that's, that's the end, That's that's the story.
0: Great story, Paul. And I I know we've got several more that we want to talk to you about. It's been a pleasure having you on. So we're definitely going to have to have you back on again, because there are so many more stories that we can talk about. So you're welcome to come back at at any point.
2: I appreciate the invite. And I I appreciate you guys, you know, um, inviting me today. Um, Yeah, it was a great time. It was fun.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, and I have a lot more questions for you on specifics on these airplanes cuz Doug and I really get deep into the details. So we'll definitely have to have you on again. But um it was great meeting you, Paul. Us av geeks are jealous of your career, the planes you've flown and the places you've been. Having said that, we know it's a hard job with a lot of responsibility and sacrifice, so congratulations on your 34 years, sir.
2: The the people I worked with were great. Yeah, I mean, everybody. Yeah, the pilots usually, you know, we get the prestige, you know, whatever like that, but you know, it's 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 everybody what we call above and below the wing, you know, from the fuelers to the caterers, it, it's everybody that makes it makes it happen. And um, again, I can't say enough for the people that I've worked with, their dedication and stuff over the years um, It's just been absolutely amazing. We're, we're supposed to push at three o'clock on the dot, and you you know at five minutes to three, the jetway's being pulled, the, the guy, the tug operator saying. You know, ground a cockpit, you're ready to pu- you know, we're getting ready to push. How are you doing up there? You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's absolutely amazing. And all the bags, it, it's just absolutely amazing how and it and it comes together a thousands of times a day.
1: That's what I was gonna say. All everything that has to happen for one triple seven flight to push on time is amazing. You know, everything down to the salad dressings, the fuel, the yeah. flight planning and everything. Yeah. So um, I just want to say thank you, Paul, and let us, the ones who are in the aviation industry, take care of you now. So when you're ready to go someplace, you don't have to worry about the, <laughs> or the weather or the meals. We'll take care of all that for you. So um, thank you, Paul. That's
2: good. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, must, no fuss. You know? Yeah. No, no nothing on me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Having me on guys. It was a great, it was a great afternoon and uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll do it again sometime.
1: Absolutely. All right. To our listeners, this podcast is your, your show. So go on our new website, nexttripnetwork.com and let us know what's on your mind so that we can talk about it or give us your feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter at Next Trip Podcast.
0: Thanks to all of our listeners for your support, for joining the conversation. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, stay aviation tough.
2: This has been the Next Trip Podcast. When the flight attendant called up to tell us the situation in the back cabin, I wish I had a picture of the co-pilot's face. He kind of went ashen as he realized of the impending environmental disaster that was about to happen. The <laughs> <laughs>